there's not a lot to report here in Nashville. It's just a very rainy day. Sitting around the house, I got my cat Frankie on my left-hand side. I got Baby on my right-hand side as I speak. Just been enjoying life around the house at a very slow pace. But things are going to pick up quite a lot. I've added a lot of dates at OtisGibbs.com, and hopefully I'll be coming somewhere near you pretty soon, and maybe we can see each other. So just stop by and check out those dates at OtisGibbs.com, and hopefully I'll see you at a show. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I'd like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Mike Bubb. Mike is a five-time IBMA Bass Player of the Year. He's a great all-around musician and just a wonderful guy to hang out with. You can follow Mike on Twitter at twitter.com slash oldbubby. If you haven't heard episode 135 and 136 where Mike talks about Bill Monroe and Jimmy Martin. I strongly urge you to go back and listen to those right now. They're wonderful. Mike is a great storyteller. People seem to enjoy those episodes quite a lot. Mike was nice enough to come by my living room, and he told even more Bill Monroe stories, and a lot of them around the Station Inn. And if you've ever come to Nashville, please stop in the Station Inn. It's a wonderful, beautiful place. There's just not any other place like it in the world. It's kind of, I joke that it's the CBGBs of bluegrass music, but it deserves much more than that. But if you're in Nashville and you want to experience something real, just go to the Station Inn and you'll get that in spades. But Mike stopped by the living room and he shared so many stories about Bill Monroe and a lot of them revolving around the Station Inn. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Here's Mike Bubb. In the 80s, I had a, a bluegrass band that was based in Arizona. And we came to Nashville to enter the Spigma Band Contest, which happens every February over at the Sheraton Hotel. Back then, it was at the Opryland Hotel. It was a big deal back then in the middle 80s. There would be like 60 or 70 bands competing. And one of the guys in our band was a fellow named Butch Baldessari, uh, passed away a few years ago. And he... Uh, in early 70s, had lived in Nashville for a while and worked at Randy Wood's Pick and Parlor. So he had a few names and connections here. So on our trip to come and compete in this contest, we got a, a guest spot at the Station Inn in between sets for the Country Gentleman. And lo and behold, Bill Monroe was there. And so, of course, Butch being the mandolin player, he's like, we gotta, we got to meet Bill, we got to get a picture with him. And I just remember that event. I don't know that 
I mean, obviously he didn't remember who we were, but, or know who we were even then or beyond. But uh, that was the first time I really got to be like right next to him, you know, and feel that aura of a guy who's just, you know, a legend icon, you know, of, of America. Was it common for Bill Monroe to hang out at the station in? Yeah, yeah, he would pop in down there all, all a lot, quite often, actually. Years later, after I moved to Nashville, I had a band down there called the Sidemen. It was a Tuesday night regular band. We played for 16 years down there. And we started kind of like in 89, 90, uh, when I, right when I moved here. I wasn't in the original version of the band, but I started playing with them not long after I moved here. It was an event, you know, it's like... These guys all played on the Opry. Most of the musicians played in the Opry and bluegrass bands. So it was Terry Eldridge and Terry Smith. And they, they played with the Osborne Brothers. And then there was Billy Rose from Bill Monroe's band, Jimmy Campbell from Jim and Jesse's band. And so that's kind of the, how it formed in the beginning was out of a jam session at a festival. that these guys all knew each other because they traveled a lot, played a lot of package shows, and played the Opry and shared a dressing room. So anyway, they started playing down there. And uh, Terry Smith at the time had just gotten married and started having kids and stuff, so he he was he wasn't out much at night at that time, and so I just started playing with him. And then Ronnie McCurry, he was the first of the McCurries to move down here in '92, and he joined us. Then we played started playing every Tuesday night in February of '92, basically, because it was a Tuesday night and because Bill knew us. Um, he would pop in down there every once in a while. If he was downtown for something, I don't know what, what would bring him there, but he would show up. And he'd sometimes come on Saturdays and Sundays or after the after the Opry or whatever. Or, or if, say, Roland White was playing, he'd, he'd come down there, you know, because he knew them. And uh, he actually got around town quite a bit. He used to go to a place called the Bell Cove uh, in Hendersonville, which was... Uh, a club right on the lake up there. And it was right next to the church that he went to called Holiday Heights Baptist. And so he would go to church on Wednesdays and then he would go over to the Bell Cove and hang out and play us, eat dinner and have us play a set after the first, after the band played their first show. And that was Larry Cordell and Glenn Duncan. And of course, Glenn Duncan played in his band for a long time. So he had all these connections and he was always around, you know, getting around and seeing music and showing up. But uh, you know, he would pop in down there and just, you know, you would get him up on stage. That's, you know, that's what he wanted to do was get up and play, you know, and sing some stuff, you know, sing some of his songs. And there's a, some friends of mine made a documentary about the station in, and there's a lot of great photographs that are in this film. The film's never been released. Uh, they've had a lot hard time with the music licensing and that sort of thing. But um, there's a lot of photographs because back in that time, Nobody was carrying movie cameras around in their pocket like they are now. But there's one instance where Bill Monroe came down there on a Tuesday night, and there was a guy with a video camera. And Terry Eldridge, who was the guitar player and singer in The Sidemen, we, we were in the back room talking to Bill. And this guy's got this camera, and he's filming the whole thing. And he says, Bill, I want to I sing one with you. He said, what would you like to do? He said, let's do uh, Mother's Not Dead. And, and they sang it and they filmed they got the whole thing on film and that's the only live piece of footage of that ilk in that documentary where somebody said you know told a story about one night uh, bill was down here and this happened and then we got it on film but everything else is either still photograph or of much more recent times when you know you could get a camera on it and people had has that capability but yeah he'd show up 
when Bill Monroe shows up to set a station in, how is he treated by the person who just bought a, bought a ticket to come in? Well, I think instantly they realize they're getting the real Nashville experience, and that is the true beauty of this town in general, but the station in. It's like uh, you never know who's going to walk through that door. You might be down there to see a band, but anybody could show up down there. And I, I mean, I've seen incredible celebrity actors and musicians and producers that come down there, and, and you just never know. And, and that's the kind of place that it is. And so when you see Bill Monroe walk in, of course, he has a small entourage and he's always dressed to the nines. He would have a three-piece suit on and, and his hat and very regal, you know. So there was no mistaking who it was or that, you're, you know, you're seeing somebody very important come, come through the door or whatever. He's the reason the whole place exists because of the music. So being a bluegrass club, you know, so they just, you know, treated him with reverence as, as they should. One of the beautiful things about Nashville is people don't really tend to bug or bother people like Bill Monroe. You know, they say that, but I don't know if that's true. I, <laughs> you'd have to ask the actual celebrity. You know what I mean? Because we, we like to pride ourselves to say, you know, um, you know we, we don't bother them, th those people, you know, whoever they are. Well, one, one time I was at the station, I took some guys down there that had never been there before. And I said, you know, you never know who you're going to see down here. You can see anybody. So we walk in, and as we're going past the soundboard, I see William Shatner sitting there eating a pizza in front of the soundboard. And it was when he made his record with Ben Folds. He was in town, and somebody said, go to the station inn, you know, so he came down there. And I could say nobody was bothering him. So we get over to the bar, and I told this guy, I said, look over my shoulder. I said, William Shatner's sitting over there. Captain Kirk sitting over there, right in front of the soundboard. He goes, and if he ain't. And the guy walked over, and he just kind of hovered around him and looked at him a little bit, and they kind of exchanged glances and winks or whatever, you know, nods, gentlemanly nod. And he just said to him, I always enjoyed your TV work. And he said, thank you. And then he just walked away. That was it. So, so I don't know if that's bugging him or giving him a compliment or, you know, but he felt compelled he had to go interact with, uh, with Bill Shatner. Well, I'll tell you another a funny story that kind of relates to something like that. One time, uh, Bill Monroe played a, for a convention group at the Ryman, and this was before they restored the Ryman. So at the time, it was a museum. It was just like walking into an old sailing ship, you know. It was just like the old rope curtain pulls, and the, they had the old pin rail and all that stuff on stage. It's very just old-timey, just like if you see uh, Emily Lou's live concert there. That's the last thing they did before they restored it and, and refurbished it. Anyway, Jimmy Campbell, the fiddle player, called me and says, hey, we're playing down to Ryman today uh, for this convention group. You got to come down there. I said, all right, I'm coming. So I go down there because, you know, I'm always trying to take advantage of these things like, you know, when am I ever going to see Bill Monroe at the Ryman Auditorium? And, uh, of course, he did play it after they re refurbished it, but this was a chance to see it in its, like, oldest form, you know, like what it would have really been like to see him on that stage in the 50s, you know, or 60s. And uh, so I go down there, and they're polishing off, like, the first eight rows of pews in front of the stage so these people have a dust-free place to sit. The whole place is covered in dust. And um, back in the day, they didn't have any air conditioning there, so they built these plywood dressing rooms on the side of the stage. They're like little structures that could fit maybe 15 people in, and they put, like, a window unit air conditioner in them so they'd have a little air conditioned room on the side of the stage. 
So I'm just sort of hanging around and and uh, I walk back to the backstage, just hanging around with the Bluegrass Boys. And then I walk into that dressing room and I'm standing there. And part of the show was Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. And then the other part of the show was uh, Country Music USA from the Opryland Park, which is a, a country music review. You know, you have Minnie Pearl and you've got the guy, uh, the, the Royaka impersonator and uh, all the great classic country music stars in a show form that's a, you know, there's dancers and there's music and there's throwback songs and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, I'm standing in the dressing room. I look and there's Bill Monroe. And, you know, if you've ever seen any of these pictures of this, these little rooms on the side of, this, of the Ryman stage, you'll see like where Bill Monroe would put his mandolin on the, there's like a long counter where they put their instruments. And, and uh, I see his mandolin is probably where he put it every week for years and years and years when he went there, you know, just like such a natural thing to be there for him. And, He's sitting in this chair right by the door, and the guy from the Country Music USA show who does Hank Williams comes walking in in the note musical note suit, Hank Williams suit, costume, and he's about 20-something. And he's leaning over talking to Bill Monroe, who's about 80-something. And just to see those two together, it was like a time warp, you know? And I was like, if I had anything to have a camera then, it would have been an incredible photograph because it just looks like he's talking to his old buddy Hank, except it's 50 years later and, and uh, Hank's the same age, you know. It's really like a ghost of Hank Williams. It was really something that's really neat to see that. It's beautiful to think of the memories that he must have of Hank Williams backstage at, yeah. the, at the Opry or at the Ryman. Well, supposedly they rode, they rode a lot of miles together, you know. And, of course, they wrote a song called uh, I'm Blue and Lonesome. Uh, it's a classic bluegrass song, but credited to Hank Williams and Bill Monroe. I don't know the story around it other than that they probably wrote it together riding down the road. People that listen to the Mac Wiseman episode know the story of, of Hank writing I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry with Mac in, in the car and Bill Monroe in the car. Uh-huh. And I believe Mac said that him and Bill Monroe threw in a few words here and there to help write Of course, he didn't give us any writer's credit on that. But... <laughs> Backstage at the Station Inn, there's a picture of Bill Monroe holding a kitten. Uh -huh. Do you know anything about that picture, where it came from? That picture was taken by the gal that works down there named Lynn Barber. And Lynn's bartended at the Station Inn for 30-plus years. She's really, you know, she is, she is the Station Inn. She's a sassy, you know, cusses like a sailor. No BS bartender down there at Station Inn, but... Lovable, nonetheless. <laughs> we revere her, and uh, she's a classic. Anyway, she's a photographer, and she did a lot of uh, album covers and different album work uh, through the years. And I don't know where that photo session came from, but she took that picture maybe out at Bill's house because he had a lot of animals out there. He had a lot of cats and dogs running around there. At one time, she was married to a guy named Raymond Huffmaster, who was the bus driver for the Osborne Brothers. And so it's all sort of interconnected, and they all, all see each other different places. And maybe they were out at Bill's place and just taking pictures, and she she snapped that. A great picture. Oh yeah, it's a I've, classic. I've never seen it anywhere online either. So. Nope, that's probably what's out of her personal collection. I had a bunch of Japanese people visiting one time, not me, but Nashville, and they wanted to go see Bill Monroe. 
So I called up my buddy, Jimmy Campbell, who played fiddle for him. I said, what is the protocol to go to Bill Monroe's place? He goes, just go out there. Just show up. He loves it. I go, well, I don't want to just show up with 10 Japanese people and not tell him that we're coming. He goes, just do it. He'll love it. He just loves it. He loves it when people come to visit. I said, are you sure? He said, just go out there. I'm telling you, they, they don't care. <laughs> I said, okay, I'm going to do it. So I load up all these Japanese folks, and we go out there. A couple of them speak pretty good English, but most of them don't speak very much English. But they're, they revere Bill Monroe, you know, as this American icon and American music. And, and um, so we drive out there. And we get out of the car, the minivan and a car we're in. It's eerily quiet out there, just very quiet. All you can hear is birds and livestock or whatever, wind blowing through the leaves and and there's just nothing happening. I'm so wow. Maybe maybe there's nobody here. And all of a sudden Bill emerges from this garage that's off from his cabin that he lived in and he comes out and I said, Bill, I said uh, I brought some uh fans of yours from Japan. They want to come out and see you and meet you and, and say hello to you. They're from Japan. I said, yeah. He goes, I've got a lot of fans over there. It's very nice to see you. And he just lit up. And he greeted all these people. And uh, at the time, Gal's was taking care of him and taking care of the farm. Her name is Julie. She comes out. Julia, she says, uh, she says, Bub, who have you, what have you done? What are you doing here with all these people? <laughs> and I said, well, I said, they wanted to come and meet the man. I said, I had to bring him out here. I said, there's no, I don't know what to do other than just bring him out here. And, uh, she was very hospitable, you know, got everybody a glass of tea, and, and we all ended up on the porch with these cats and these dogs, and everybody's petting these animals. And, and the most difficult conversation, you know, like to have a conversation with him was just, uh, you know, you had to really work hard to get an answer out of him to seem to t t tell you anything, you know. He's a lot of, mm-hmm, yeah, that's right, yeah. You'd ask him a question, yeah, mm-hmm. And uh, he would never elaborate on things, so. But uh, it was a fun afternoon, and one of the neat things was the, one of the guys being Japanese, camera crazy, they had all kinds of cameras and video cameras with them, and the guy went through Bill's entire house and filmed everything on the walls and all the artwork and uh, went through the entire cabin and his bedroom and the kitchen. And, and, and uh, years later, I got to be friends with him on Facebook, and I said, you know, if you ever get a chance to put that on a disc, I would love to have that videotape and sure enough he sent it to me and i i got it recently dvd of the whole afternoon there what did bill think about him uh filming didn't think a of thing of it his house was like a museum you know like a living museum it was very rural and rustic you know he lived much the way that he grew up and i think he lived there his entire life in nashville and uh, he had a beautiful piece of farmland out there. He had horses, and he had a, a rural cabin, basically a cabin is where he lived in. Uh, it was fairly big, big living room, couple bedrooms, kitchen, little dining area, and the nice big wraparound porch. And very old-timey, you know, he, he kept a garden, had a big barn in the back where they had saddle tack for horses and stuff, and um, he had a pasture right in front of it across the road where he kept some cattle. You know, it's just the way he grew up. I think he just never left that lifestyle 
But he'd actually know how to shoe a horse if he needed to. Well, I don't know about shoeing a horse. I don't know that he was a farrier, but he he knew how to handle a horse, you know. But what's interesting, you know, it's like very old timey, and uh, he had all the old type implements hanging on the outside of the of the cabin. It was very neatly kept, and you know, you live like that. You have chores to do every day. There's chores, and and uh, I think that's it. Kept him busy, you know. Kept him alive, really, to live like that. You know, people today they don't they don't live like that. They everything's a convenience now. You know, I don't think Bill lived for any kind of conveniences. I was thinking earlier, you know, he's always had to prove himself in everything that he did, being the youngest in his family. So in his family, he had to prove himself. And breaking up with his brother Charlie had to prove himself again as a musician, as an artist, you know. And and living out there in a place like that is also, uh, it'll make a man out of you kind of thing, you know. And I think he probably really um, would rather have that view, you know, you have that view of him. Well, it's interesting, you know, uh, he was born with a lazy eye, so people always look down on him for that. He was very shy because of it. If you read the biography on him, you know, he would hide underneath the steps of the porch and look out from the steps of the porch. He didn't want anybody to see him. He was also the youngest, you know. He had, um, he, there was a banjo player that played with him named Butch Robbins, uh, played with him in the late 70s, and probably one of the best and greatest banjo players that he ever had and really a great interpreter of his music on the five string banjo. But also he um, just recently did these sort of talks on video where he talks about uh, Bill Monroe in the sense of um, what it was like for him to grow up and what made him what he is. They're on, uh, I think they're on YouTube. You can, you can, you can probably Google them and find them. It's just Butch Robbins bluegrass story or bluegrass history. Uh, the university in Radford, Virginia is the one that put them up or has them on their website, I think. But it has a very interesting take on all of those things that influenced his life. Now in our overanalyzed society, we know why people are a certain way, you know, like, oh, that's because this happened to him and that's because this occurred in his life or he's had to deal with this or that, you know. Back then they didn't know any of that stuff. And so it's interesting to hear now to look at somebody like that who, you know, Bill grew up in hardship. He, he was a hard worker and he expected that out of everybody almost to the point that he didn't have, you, you think he didn't have a sense of humor, but uh, I think you had to, you had to, uh, you had to work hard to get the sense of humor out of him. Cause a lot of times he thought things were funny and he didn't want anybody else to know it, you know? So he would get the last laugh. I heard one time he tried to show, uh, uh, who's the guy saying Candy Kisses? Uh, George Morgan. George Morgan was a really good guitar player, acoustic rhythm guitar player. And, and so he said, George, I, I'm going to show you this number. And he's just showing him this song with all these crazy chord changes that don't make any sense. But he's acting like it's, re it's real. And George Morgan's like scratching his head going, oh, show me that other chord there. And then where's it go after that? And, and he's just messing with him. <laughs> You know, but he didn't ever tell him. He just let him go, you know, like, just never told him. And he thought that was funny. Well, you know, there's some mythical ones. You know, there's the, the Frank Sinatra story, which I don't know if it's true or not, but, you know, supposedly they're in a room at the White House together, 
at a Kennedy Center Honors or something. They they find themselves in a room together. Bill Monroe and Frank Sinatra. Mr. Sinatra says, uh, Mr. Monroe, he says, I'm a very big fan of yours, and it's very nice to be here with you. And, and Bill says, uh, what did you say your name was? Frank Sinatra, sir. I'm a singer. And, and, and Bill says, I believe I've heard of you. <laughs> no compliments, just I believe I've heard of you. <laughs> and there's another one that Blake Williams tells a great story about. Uh, for some reason, they were driving through Las Vegas. I don't think they were playing there, but they were maybe on their way somewhere, and they went through Vegas, and somebody said, let's drive down the Strip. So they're driving down, and they see Ray Charles's name on the marquee of someplace like Caesar's Palace or something. And Bill says, I haven't seen him in a long time. I'd like to see him. I'd like to visit with him. And so sure enough, they pulled the bus up right in front of Caesar's Palace or whatever casino it was. And somebody steps off the bus and says, I've got Bill Monroe from the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville, Tennessee here, and he'd like to uh, visit with Ray Charles if we could make that happen. And they said, yeah, sure, we can make that happen. Somehow or another, they arrange this meeting with Ray Charles, and and uh, they tell a story about walking down these hallways, you know, to get to the, maybe to the showroom where Ray's performing before he does a show. And so Bill says, uh, what should I say to him when I see him? And Blake says, well, I just start singing Blue Moon of Kentucky. And so they walk in the room, and he goes, Blue Moon of Kentucky. And Ray's like, Bill Monroe, I can't believe Bill Monroe's here. Wow, you know. And they, and they had an exchange there for 20, 20, 30 minutes, you know, got to visit with each other. And then out the door and gone. <laughs> you know, day in the life of Bill Monroe. Of course, Ray made him a lot of money probably, cut a couple of his songs, or at least cut Blue Moon of Kentucky, you know. Those was powerful checks. <laughs> it's quite a copyright. You know, you think about that song, it's one verse, one chorus. But it's iconic, you know, so simple and beautiful melody and heartfelt. And then you think, gosh, recorded by so many people. I mean, people lose sight of that simplicity, the beauty and simplicity sometimes, you know. And that's probably one of the greatest examples of it right there. I was really glad to help Elvis get started, <laughs> even though it practically killed his career. He was still getting he was still getting paid. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Mike for stopping by my living room and sharing stories. You can follow Mike on Twitter at twitter.com slash oldbubby. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe, and you'll get a brand new episode as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.